0: If you have a Bible, I would like you to turn to Acts 17, because I'm going to read a small section of it. Brothers and sisters, the Gospel is, Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, and He is the Lord of the world. And that Gospel claims the believing allegiance of every human being. And it summons everyone, rich and poor, wealthy, needy, powerful, weak, to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the world's true Lord and that gospel has brought great opposition everywhere it's been proclaimed especially to power and it brings opposition to those who refuse to owe their allegiance to Jesus the true Lord and instead bow their knee to some other God that's pretty much the story of the book of Acts <laughs> it was a collision of two kingdoms and two worlds and I just want to read out of Acts 17 because I think the story is awesome Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica, and I'll read from verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He's talking about the Jews in Thessalonica. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying this, Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. So his message to the Jew is Jesus is the Savior, he is the Messiah. But that wasn't his only message because listen to what happens next. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, where the believers were staying, They were seeking to bring them out to the people. So there's an immediate uproar in the city amongst the Greeks. We're going to find out why in a minute. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. Isn't that awesome? They went into that city and they announced there is another person running the show, folks. It's Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and risen. And the city went into an uproar. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. We are living in the already, but not yet, of the kingdom of God. The already, but not yet. We're living in the presence of the future. The kingdom of God is here, but the kingdom of God is future. We are living in the overlap of the ages. The overlap between the future and the present. Jesus is Lord, that's presently true, but in the future every knee will bow and proclaim His Lordship. We're living between those two periods of time. And as I said last night, God's great mission, part of His eternal purpose, is to bring Heaven to Earth. God's not going to reject the world. He's not going to reject His Earth. He's going to transform it. He's going to restore it. And when the Lord says He will judge the world, and this is all over the Scripture, Jesus will return to Earth, He will reign here, He will judge the world. Don't just think of that to mean He's going to destroy the sinners. He's going to set things right. That's what that means. He's going to bring it back to the way it was. He will set the world to what is right. He will set it in order. He will bring it back to Himself. That's what judging the world is. So He will renew and restore, and there will be peace, justice, freedom, healing, forgiveness, and joy. As the prophets have said over and over again, The glory of the Lord, God's loving presence, will overflow. It will burst forth over the whole world as the waters cover the sea. And that's when the trees of the field will clap their hands. The wolf and the lion will lie together. And the presence of the Lord will fill the whole earth. That's where it's all headed. In the meantime, we are part of the new creation. We're part of that future world. But we are also agents of the new creation. You and I, brothers and sisters are agents of the new creation in the midst of the old. And that's what the church is. She is an agent, God's servant, the new creation in the midst of the old. And God is bringing heaven to earth. And consequently, one of the things that we pointed out last night is the church acts and lives as though God were running the show right now. And when she acts and lives as though God were running the show, it looks like a certain man going around Galilee And doing certain things, performing signs that showed that the kingdom of God, the future kingdom, was breaking into the present world. Mm -hmm. And we, the church, continue that mission. There's not been this break where we divorce ourselves from Jesus of Nazareth who walked this earth. As I said in the beginning of the message, the Jesus of history is the same unchanging person as the Christ of faith (laughs) who dwells in you now. It's the same person. And that to me is a revelation, because in so many Christian traditions, those two people have been divorced and separated, the Jesus of earth and the Christ of faith. Brothers and sisters, as the Church of Jesus Christ, as members of the new creation, members of the body of Christ, we are called to live out a different story and a different dream than the pagans. So God has called us into his mission. Now, I want to get practical here, and I'm I'm going to move toward practicality by giving you a survey of the New Testament. But before I do that, I want to read to you a letter I wrote to a brother who I have been discussing with over, I guess, the past year about this whole issue. I'm going to keep his identity anonymous. (laughs) Secret Asian man. You're talking about Andrew Lee? No, it's not Andrew Lee. (laughs) Here's my letter to him. In the Genesis project, God's purpose is outlined to express his image in the earth and have dominion over his enemy. How can a church do this if it doesn't have a vision to bring God's redemptive healing to the world? Does the church simply cast out demons from one another? Do they only express Christ to each other? Is the church really supposed to be a navel-gazing community of people who close their doors to the world and the earth that God has created and so dearly loves? Consider the mission of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant was that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Israel was to be God's agent of redemption, healing, and His testimony and expression in the earth. It was through Israel that God's dream for the world would be fleshed out. And that idea or that dream was to reach out to all of mankind as well as the fallen earth. The church has taken over that mission. She is the new Israel. Has God revoked the Abrahamic promise that through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed? Consider the typical house church that you know of. Is it a blessing to the world and the earth? Or is it just living unto itself and its members? Do you really feel comfortable watching unbelievers feed the hungry, clothe the homeless, bless those in need, stand up for the oppressed, when the church says, this isn't our mission. How do you square that with the ministry of Jesus Christ? Is He not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Does the Good Samaritan parable and so many others not have any points of contact with the heart of our Lord in the here and now? What does it mean for the church to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth? Are Christians simply to be light to one another and salt to each other? Or do those metaphors give us insight into the fact that the only true redeeming agent in the world for fallen humans and for a fallen world is in fact the church of Jesus Christ? This is purely an instinctual question. Do you really feel comfortable with the idea that such a church isn't doing any good for the world? That it hardly seems to care for lost people? And hardly any lost people ever come to the Lord through it. That the lost are regarded as a different species like dogs and cats. That a church's primary and dominating focus is good meetings. That none of the things that are mentioned in Jesus' mission of Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord has sent me to heal the broken heart, etc., is being fleshed out at all. Forget the Bible for a moment. Are your spiritual instincts really comfortable with this? Speaking about what I'll call the little flock tradition, Brother Sparks, T. Austin Sparks, was very vocal about world domination. He also made the statement that if a church is not sharing the gospel with the lost, it didn't understand the eternal purpose. Again, I don't think it's either or, but a matter of both and. And I think the season in the church's life will determine what comes first. I don't think we have to choose between what's most important. The church specializes in Jesus Christ. But what exactly does that mean, and what does it look like? Throughout the years I've watched some Christians verbally major in Jesus Christ, yet they didn't seem to know the heart of Christ very well at all, and their conduct and character contradicted His nature. This then becomes a very important question. What does expressing God's image and exercising His dominion really mean? Should we not look to Jesus when He was on the earth to get some idea? Is it possible that God's high calling for His church in this hour is to embody and incarnate the Gospel of the Kingdom of God in fresh and creative ways in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit? That was my letter. And I think that summarizes what I shared with you all last night pretty well. I'm going to quickly take you through the New Testament. And I want to show you that the story I told yesterday continues beautifully throughout the entire New Testament and I'm gonna redefine a couple words for you when I saw this it was revolutionary to me and I hope it'll be revolutionary to you first the church is the new Israel this is clear from the New Testament particularly the writings of Paul she is a signpost of the future coming age and she embodies and incarnates the breaking in of that coming age now in this day, hence the reason why I labeled these messages living in the presence of the future. I want to start by reading for you a few places in the Old Testament songs, which would be what? What are the Old Testament songs called? The Psalms. And the Old Testament wisdom literature, which is Proverbs. These continue to tell the story I was telling yesterday about God restoring His earth. So listen to these first. This is all woven into the history of Israel. Psalm 12:5. "Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise," says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them." Psalm 82:2-4. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 140.12 I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Proverbs 14.31 He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whosoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 19.17 He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and He will reward him for what he has done. Proverbs 29.7 The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Proverbs 31.20, and this is in reference to the virtuous woman. Remember her, the Proverbs 31 woman? Which many people take as a type and a picture of the church. She opens her arms wide to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Now, all of that, again, was part of Israel's mission to show God's heart, God's image, God's justice for the world. And she was a picture of what the future will look like. Now, I have had people say to me, Frank, the New Testament is silent about the church of Jesus Christ caring anything about the world other than salvation. All we should be concerned about is the salvation of souls. Of course, there's some who say we shouldn't even care about that. But in the evangelical world, we should care about the salvation of souls, but that's it. Our task as the people of God ends there. I believe that's totally an error and it is a break with the biblical story, the story from the beginning on. And it's a violation of this idea of the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached, Jesus being Lord. I'm going to redefine two words for you, and I'm redefining them, I believe, in the light of Scripture. And I think you'll see this very clearly. I have been taught that these are cuss words in the Christian vocabulary. I have been taught that these are words that no Christian should use. And if they are ever used, it's always in a negative light. Are you ready for what they are? Hold on to your chair now. Doing good and good deeds. Bad, 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 bad. I don't want to have any, I'm a Christian. I don't want to have anything to do with doing good and good deeds. Why do some people feel that those words are taboo Because they conjure up in their mind, this is human strength at work. This is the righteousness of the flesh at work. This is eating from the wrong tree. This is man, woman in their own power trying to do something for God. That's what comes into mind. Now, there is a word in Scripture that means all those things. It is this, the works of the law. That's what the works of the law is. And as Christians, we don't want to have anything to do with the works of the law. But doing good and good works in the New Testament usage do not mean working for God in the power of the flesh. I'll tell you what they mean. Doing good is expressing the life of God Himself in Christ. That's what doing good is. Good is a life form. Good is God Himself. Good is Jesus Christ. That's what good is. It's not a thing. It's a person. And doing good or good deeds is the act of allowing God through the Holy Spirit to express His life in outward conduct. And I'm going to prove this to you right now by looking at the way Jesus used it and the way that Luke used it to refer to Jesus. This is Acts 10.38. Listen to this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and He went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with Him. Now, three observations. Jesus Christ did good by the power of the Holy Spirit. God was with Him, and doing good in this context meant alleviating human suffering. It meant healing those who were oppressed of the devil. Okay? So when you hear doing good, I want you to think, this is God acting through human vessels. That's what doing good is. What is good works? It's God acting through a human being. Jesus lived by God's life, correct? Did He not live by the life of the Father? Well, if you want to find out what that looks like, look at what He did. That's what good deeds are. It's the Father working through the Son. Now, listen to Luke 6, verse 9. Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand, and when He does, Jesus says to the Jews, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy life? Doing good equates alleviating human suffering, and that's a work of God. It's not a human work. It's not the works of the law. Now, I'm trying to make this clear because I'm telling you, many of you have been conditioned to think that doing good is bad. It is not. It is God working through you. Okay, now, with that in mind, let's go through the story. I'm going to do this real quick, and I'm just going to read passages out of the New Testament. In Acts 2 and 4, the church in Jerusalem distributed to everyone who had a need. Now that is in reference to the Christians, brand new Christians in Jerusalem. So they were taking care of their own. But there is a strong tradition that says that when the church in Antioch sent money to Jerusalem because they were going through a famine, the early Christians not only took that money and helped one another, but they helped the unbelieving Jews around them. And I will tell you, I believe that tradition is true because we have good, strong historical basis to show that the church always did this Mm -hmm. from early on up until at least the 4th, 5th century. And I'll show you this later. When James the Just, the brother of Jesus, was killed, and when his murder was being plotted by the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they plotted his murder. This was in 62 A.D. The Jewish community in Jerusalem who were not Christians. Are you following me? The Jewish community protested his death. They did not want him to die. And this is in Josephus. It was because he showed the kingdom of God which included the poor in Jerusalem who were not Christians. They protested his death. I think that's amazing. Acts 9.36 In the church of Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha who's also called Dorcas who was always doing good and helping the poor. Here's a sister in the church, and Luke makes clear he wants us to know what kind of woman she was. Uh, I've read that for years and just shot past it and didn't think anything of it. Acts 10, Luke points out that Cornelius, the Roman centurion, reverenced God and gave generously to those in need. By the way, I'm quoting this verbatim from Scripture. He gave generously to those in need. When the angel appeared to him, he said, Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. That's pretty significant. That that was the thing that God noticed about Cornelius. Now, let's look at the epistles. Galatians 2.10, written to the four churches in Galatia who are mostly made up of heathen Gentiles. Paul says, the twelve apostles asked that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the teachings of Jesus was instilled in the twelve apostles, which was rooted in the nation of Israel and God's word to them about caring for the needy and the poor and the stranger and the orphan. And this was in Paul's heart. This was part of the Gentile mission. And Paul's telling the Gentiles that the twelve wanted us to go to the poor and it was in my heart to do that. Galatians 6.10 Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Many Christians have taken the latter clause, let us do good, especially to the household of faith, and have forgotten the first part of it, which says, let us do good to all people. What is doing good? It is alleviating human suffering by the power of God himself. And it's a throwback to what Luke says about Jesus. He went around doing good and healing all those who are oppressed of the devil. And God was with him. Galatians 3 says that we are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the Abrahamic promise, which was, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. We are the new Israel. 1 Thessalonians one three, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by your faith, Your labor prompted by love. Now here is a church in Thessalonica that is doing some kind of work and some kind of labor. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.17, May God encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. 1 Corinthians 15.58. Now who can tell me what 1 Corinthians 15 is about? I know that John probably knows. Okay, he's talking about the resurrection. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus, and then he talks about the resurrection of the dead, and then he explains to them that they will be resurrected just like Jesus was. But listen to how he ends the chapter. This is verse 58. He doesn't say what we would think he would say based upon the Gospels we received. So, brothers and sisters, lift up your heads on high and wait for that wonderful resurrection where we'll go to heaven and be with Jesus. That's not what he says. Here's what he says. Therefore, therefore, always giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Anything that you do by the Lord's power and the Lord's grace and the Lord's life for His coming kingdom is not in vain. It's not in vain. It will last. It is the signs of the coming kingdom the coming together of heaven and earth, and it will in some way go into the final creation. No matter how small it is, it will go into the final creation, the new creation, when the new creation bursts upon the scene. And that is a powerful, powerful word here. What a way to end the dialogue on the resurrection. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. That's an exhortation by an apostle to a church. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. Romans 8, and Danny brought this out beautifully, the whole earth is in travail. God's not going to scrap His creation. He's going to renew and restore it. What God did for Jesus on Easter Sunday, He will do for the whole creation. He will restore, transform, and renew it. He will raise it up in newness. He uses the image of the earth being like a woman travailing in birth. And the new creation will be born out of the old creation. And one of the amazing things he says here, as I pointed out yesterday, is he then says the Holy Spirit now is groaning through you. What are we groaning for? We're also groaning for the world. That groaning that the earth is going through is a reflection of God's own heart and the Holy Spirit has been given to us to groan with the world. Another thing about this is in Romans 4, Paul says that we are heirs of the world. The church, the Christians, we're heirs of the world. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Well, in the Old Testament, there was something called the Holy Land. What was the Holy Land in the Old Testament? Tell me. It was Israel. Heirs of the world. Okay, the Holy Land, right? Israel. Well, now, in the New Age, the New Covenant Age, where Jesus Christ has inaugurated His Kingdom, God has not abolished the idea of the Holy Land. The whole world becomes the Holy Land. Right now, the whole world has become the Holy Land. you know why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord over the whole world. And His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, will come to the whole world. Right now, brothers and sisters, when you walk outside Jacksonville, you're in the Holy Land. The kingdom of this world has become. Become. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship, His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to keep the light within ourselves, to do good works, what is that? It's the work of the kingdom. It's God operating through the church to show forth the kingdom of God, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, Paul was not a legalist. And in Ephesians 1, you all know Ephesians 1. What is his argument? We have been in Christ from before time, chosen in Him, predestined in Him, marked out in Him, holy and blameless. Why? Ephesians 2. So that you can show forth the God in the earth and stand for the fact that Jesus is running the show. He is Lord of the world. Good works. It's a totally different view, folks, than we have been taught. Ephesians 4.28, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. I'm quoting Paul here. I didn't make any of this up. I'm just telling you what Paul encouraged the churches in this way of the kingdom. 1 Timothy 6:17-18 Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Titus 2:14 Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. Now, we just kind of cut that out. You know? (laughs) He's redeemed us to Himself. We're His people. Well, no, we don't want anything to do with this doing good. That's the law. Throw that out. But that's not how Paul saw it. It's God working through the church to be the light of the world. (laughs) Titus 3.8 This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Those things that are excellent and profitable for everyone. Hebrews 10.24 And Phil quoted this earlier in our conversation at his house. This is the passage about meetings. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Listen to what he says. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Or to rephrase that, toward the work of the kingdom of God. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 13.16 And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. 1 Peter 2.12 Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. James 1.27 Pure spirituality that God our Father accepts is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's all I have. I want to tell you something. I just gave you a little sample of what's in the New Testament on this. But what we find is this, that it was very clear to the mind of the early apostles that the church was here. One of the reasons why the church was here was to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ, which was, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captive free, to give sight to the blind, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, to be a sign of the coming kingdom breaking into this present world. And the apostles, Paul, Peter, James, etc., the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, continually reminded the church that she was here to continue that ministry. And the word they used again and again was this word, good deeds. It had to do with the work of the kingdom, which is to express Christ in the world. And to me, it gives a whole new meaning of what this thing about good works is. Good works are fruit falling off of a tree by the life that's in the tree. But nevertheless, it's fruit. And you can see it. It's visible. Now, the early Christians carried on that ministry. Listen to the Christians after the first century. And these are the stories that have really ignited me and encouraged me. Because I look back at our forefathers and I see... They got it. They understood that they were living in the presence of the future and that they were embodying the kingdom of God to this world that God so lovingly wishes to restore. Here are a few stories. This is right out of the pages of history. Thank God that people wrote their stories down. At the height of the second great epidemic, around 260, Dionysius wrote a lengthy tribute to the heroic nursing efforts of local Christians many of whom lost their lives while caring for others." And here's the actual document. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, and cheerfully accepting their pains. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them in the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. When the New Testament was new, These were the norms of the Christian communities. Tertullian claimed, he was a Christian leader at the time, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. Love of one's neighbor is not an exclusively Christian virtue, but in this period, Christians appear to have practiced it much more effectively than any other group. The church provided the essentials of social security. Even more important, I suspect, than these material benefits was the sense of belonging which the Christian community could give. We have this picture of this epidemic hitting this town. By the way, this wasn't the only time this happened. And what the heathens were doing, this included the doctors and the nurses, they got out of Dodge and even left their loved ones to die. And it was the Christians who stayed and took care of them and nursed them to health, and some of them lost their lives doing it. Now, if that's not a light to the world of the future coming into the present to show what God's world is like when He's running the show, I don't know what is. Okay, listen to this other testimony. Speaking of the Christians, these communities were by no means ingrown. Among their activities often were means of serving the material needs of their neighbors, which dumbfounded the imagination of their contemporaries. For example, the Christians in Alexandria intervened on both sides in a civil war to attempt to mediate a dispute and to bring relief to both parties. The Christians in Carthage nursed the pagan victims of the terrible plague of 252. In many places, the Christians provided hospitality and poor relief to pagans as well as believers. The sincerest flattery of this came from the ex-Christian Emperor Julian, who in the 360s was finding it difficult to reinstate paganism as a religion of the Roman Empire. So get the picture now. This is a Roman emperor, Julian, and he's having a real problem getting people to worship at the pagan temples. And here's why. The problem, he discovered, was that the Christians had been so generous. Now, this is a direct quote from him. He calls them impious Galileans. They're impious because they don't worship the gods. The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. <laughs> How dare they! Now, this is a Roman emperor saying this. In 312, the local imperial forces, sensing the need to replenish the legions, conscripted some young men and shipped them, guarded by soldiers down the Nile to Thebes, there to prevent the conscripts escaping. They were held in a prison. Now listen to this. In the evening, some merciful Christians, hearing about them, brought them something to eat and drink and other necessities, because they were in distress. One of the conscripts, 20-year-old Pacomius asked who the merciful people were. He was told that they were Christians and that the Christians were merciful to everyone, including strangers. It's a direct quote. But he repeated, What is a Christian? They are people who bear the name of Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and they do good to everyone, putting their hope in Him who made heaven and earth and us people. Hearing of this great grace, the account continues. Pacomius' heart was set on fire with the fear of God and with joy. Withdrawing alone in the prison, he raised his hands to heaven and offered himself in love for God and the service of others. Shortly thereafter, after being discharged, Pacomius went to a nearby village where he was baptized through the active mercy of a local community of Christians Pacomius was one for the faith. Pacomius was not an exceptional conversion, nor was it simply the result of the practical application of charity. It was the natural product of a community whose common life was animated by these values, and it was actively attractive. So I come back again and I say to you what made Jesus Christ so attractive to the people? It was that he showed them who God was in his activity. And the ones who crucified him and hated him were the ones in power who were not willing to accept his lordship. I have come to the understanding, brothers and sisters, at this point in time, that there are four dimensions of the church's existence on the earth. And maybe if you ask me five years from now, I may add a fifth, I don't know. But right now, I know that there's four And I want you to hear them clearly, because to me, very few churches anywhere, and I don't care what tradition they're part of, what denomination, what circles they run around with, very few churches are operating in all four dimensions. The first is contemplation. And this is the whole life of the church where it is worshiping the Lord, fellowshipping and communing with the Lord, internally receiving His life, encountering Him, touching Him, loving Him, contemplation. It's the inward life of the church in its love and worship and fellowship with Christ. The second one is what I'll call corporate display. This is where the church gathers together to make the headship of Jesus Christ visible, where every member functions and corporately expresses Him. And the result of that is the building up of the body And it also registers to principalities and powers that Jesus Christ is still alive for He is head of His church, even though He's invisible. That's the corporate display. The third one is community life. And this is where the church lives out the life of the kingdom of God to one another. This is where the members of the church take care of one another. They live by a different set of values than the world does. They genuinely love one another. They're family. They're in one another's lives they express and reveal the love and life of Jesus in their interaction with one another as a community of people. The fourth one is commission. And this is the mission of God through the church, to be an outpost of the coming kingdom to the world now, to show that the kingdom of God that we are part of and that is coming to this earth is now breaking into the world. And when the church begins to act out of the life of Christ and does things like this, to help the needy and the poor and to stand with the oppressed and to heal the brokenhearted through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a sign that Jesus Christ is Lord and this is what the world will look like. Taste it now. This is what it is. And that's the commission of the church. I believe that all four of these dimensions, they overlap, but they're all necessary for the church to be who God has called the church to be. And if we look out in the horizon, at least for me, I see many churches excelling in the first, excelling in the second, some in the third, some in the fourth, but where is the church that is operating in all four dimensions? And brothers and sisters, the point of my whole message last night and today is simply this. Now there is a new season where the mission of God has just been expanded and His eternal purpose has just been unveiled a little bit more, and there's a new adventure to walk through. And it has to do with taking that light that you have and putting windows around it and living in the presence of the future to let that Christ who lives in you come out for others to see. Now, I said I was going to get practical. So now I'm going to give you a list of rules and regulations to follow (laughs) where you will have to obey this. What I want to do is tell you a little bit of my personal story very quickly, and then I want to read uh, an account of another church that's been engaging in this kind of kingdom work. Very early on, we developed a burden for the poor and the homeless in our town. And we acted on it. Now, I want to tell you, I did not have the understanding, I didn't have any of the understanding that I shared with you last night or today. None of it. But we were operating by instinct. Spiritual instinct, as I look back at it now. And so we did several things. The first thing is one of the brothers, he's a single brother. He's still single today, by the way. Dear brother, he bought a home in the inner city. And all of us together fixed up that home. We spent many hours, you know, making it livable because it was pretty run down. He got it at a dirt cheap price. So many weekends we were there refurbishing it, making it livable. It was about a four-bedroom home when we were finished with it. And we literally took homeless people and brought them in there and did the best we could to care for them. Now, of course, some of them were on drugs, and we learned all about that. We baptized a number of them. We saw a number of them come to the Lord. But that wasn't our whole motivation. It wasn't, let's be good so we can make sure they go to heaven. You know what I mean? We generally cared for them, and we felt that this was Jesus Christ ministering to them through us. Uh, We had an attic where we kept lots of clothes to um, clothe needy people. We had a place in the attic where we brought food, you know, lots of canned food and stuff like that. And every Saturday for a season, we went downtown. We labored with another church. But we felt that in doing this work, which looking back on it, it was the work of the kingdom, that in this area of helping the homeless and feeding the poor and sharing the gospel to the poor that it was okay and of course as I shared last night when John said to Jesus tell those guys over there who are casting out demons to stop they're not part of our denomination Jesus said do not stop them they are not against me they are for me whosoever is not against me is for me and this went on for a while and we learned lots of lessons some I wish not to repeat because it's, it's difficult dealing with homeless people but looking back on it it was a training ground for me to see that there is another aspect to the gospel of Jesus Christ that has a social component. It's not just, okay, here's your fire insurance, go to heaven, or come and be part of our group. You know, we're the ones doing it right. It's Jesus Christ has a heart for the people who he had a heart for in the first century. He hasn't changed. And it was a beautiful experience. As I say, we saw some people come to the Lord. Now, this is where I'm going to end this. I came across a person who's part of a church who has really gotten involved in their community. And they understand this aspect of the kingdom of God very well. I don't think they understand some of the other aspects that I talked about, the contemplation and the community life, but they understand this aspect of the kingdom of God. 2006, they did all this. And these are all signs that the future kingdom of God has broken into the present world. Let me just read to you this list. There's actually more, but I'm just going to read to you some of them. We have fed the poor in our community. We've done three food drives for our local food pantry this year. We've begun a project to build schools, hospitals, and businesses in Haiti. We've partnered with another church to start a group called New Life for Haiti that is working on these projects in one region of Haiti. We had a fundraiser last October and we're sending work teams beginning next year. We have helped with the recovery in New Orleans. Some of us went down there this past week helping a family member to restore their house, which has been damaged since Katrina. We started to build bridges with the local Hispanic community. Uh, One of our members lives in the more Hispanic part of our county and is slowly making inroads into that community. We're supporting her. Eventually, we want to do some formal things like ESL groups or partnering with a Hispanic church. And to me, this just speaks of the reality that there is no Jew or Gentile in the church. One of the things that rocked the first century was they saw that the Jew and the Gentile who have a history of hating one another, beyond hate, were actually loving one another. Uh, We worked with disadvantaged kids in after-school programs. One of our members works for the Salvation Army with their kid programs, and some of us have gotten involved. We've thrown parties to the poor and the mentally handicapped. We had a Christmas party last December and specifically invited everyone from the Food Pantry, as well as the Community Center for Mentally Handicapped Adults, which is also where we meet on Sunday mornings. We raised awareness about issues of fair trade, third world debt relief, modern slavery, extreme poverty, global AIDS pandemic, and domestic abuse. Every week we have a missional highlight in the church where we talk about these issues and encourage our folks to get involved. This is just one example of one church, very small church, by the way, <laughs> probably a little bit larger than this who are doing something in the Lord to express the kingdom of God. If you've gotten a vision of God's mission for the world, then I think it's only natural that you will begin to pray and seek the Lord as to how He wishes for you to express Him, His life, in the city of Jacksonville and operate by His life. But I think that spiritual instincts in you, I hope spiritual instincts in you have been heightened. You've been made aware of one aspect of the Lord's heart.